Do you remember our first conversation about this podcast? Yeah, it was in the before times and we were (laughs) in your apartment working on the Upper West Side and truthfully, I thought it was a great idea, but I really wasn't sure how it was going to happen. Yeah, I have a lot of those great (laughs) ideas that don't ever get off the ground. So I'm glad that this one did. We made it. (laughs) But in all honesty, I wasn't really sure if we should do it. Right. Does the world really need two more white women to take up more space? Exactly. And honestly, it's not really a tension that I've yet resolved. Mm -hmm. How to occupy the space of power, knowing others are at the margins. And do I do this at the cost of someone else? Right. Yeah, I haven't resolved that tension either, but I think we're going to lean into it (laughs) in this conversation. And actually, I began to see a way forward on this unforgettable trip to New York four years ago. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City. We're a podcast from two single Christian women who moved to New York with ambition, dreams, and more than a little sass. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Here on Saved by the City, we explore all the ways Heartland Christianity can flourish in the heart of Gotham. So this sounds like a random place to start, but have you heard of this lip color from MAC Cosmetics called Ruby Woo? I have. It's super famous for looking good on everyone, right? Exactly. That's how I found out about it. It's this gorgeous, rich red matte color. And about four years ago, I started seeing all these women on Twitter tweeting about how much they loved it. And they eventually started posting pictures of themselves wearing it. Yeah, there was black women, white women, Latino women, Asian women posting pictures of themselves in that lipstick. So it sounds like an odd thing for a lipstick to inspire a pilgrimage, but that's exactly what happened. Okay. Lisa Sharon Harper, who we love, founder and director of Freedom Road, decided to launch the Ruby Woo pilgrimage. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. I love Lisa, and I remember seeing people posting about that at the time when it first launched. I'm assuming, though, that it was not about lipstick? Yeah, you could say that. Although we did one day, like, all put on lipstick and take pictures of ourselves. (laughs) But what it really was, was a four-day pilgrimage, five different cities. We were all committed to learning about the history of racism and sexism in this country, how both are so deeply woven into into our nation's story. So definitely not frivolous topics. No. And it was such a whirlwind, right? Like... 35 women on a bus (laughs) driving to, you know, we started in Seneca Falls, the birthplace of the suffragist movement, went to New York, Philly, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. And I think about that trip all the time. I'm still processing a lot of what I learned and heard over those four days. What do you remember most? Like, what were some of those standout moments? So one of the most powerful events during the pilgrimage was a conversation we had with the civil rights activist Ruby Sales. We were in Harlem at the National Black Theater, and she was telling us, you know, all these stories from her time being a leader in the civil rights movement. And she told a story about several other activists being released from jail. She was 17, and this volunteer county deputy was so enraged by their activism that he shot at her. Like a law enforcement officer? Yeah, like 
<laughs> obviously there's some resonance with things going on right now. And this yeah. wasn't that long ago. You know, this was mid 60s. And then mm. Ruby tells us that this white seminarian named Jonathan Daniels, he was an ally in the work of the civil rights movement, stepped in in that moment and took the bullet meant for Ruby sales. And he died instantly. Oh. And she could barely speak for months after that. And like, even, you know, we're sitting with her decades later, she's struggling to like tell this story. And we were just yeah. like, how do you respond to that? Yeah. I, I don't know. That's really heavy. I mean, it seems like a lot to process in one trip and it seems like you're still processing some of it. Yeah. I think part of what I wasn't sure about is what my role was on the trip. Mm, how so? In a refreshing way, I was one of a handful of white women who were on the pilgrimage. And okay. I'm sure you have a similar experience. Like most rooms that I am in, I'm in the majority. And so it was this opportunity to kind of step aside and make space for others to process and center their own stories and emotions and experiences but then part of that role of listening that I felt like I was called to do, I worried that my silence maybe communicated like a lack of care or like disengagement. Right. So maybe the question is, how do you listen well? How do you listen in an engaged way that's open to criticism or open to difficult emotions being processed mm. and not getting defensive and not shutting down? Right. I resonate with that. You know, I wrestle with a lot of those same questions is how do we as white women with public facing roles and platforms, like how do we steward that power and privilege well? And how do we listen when we need to listen and then take what we've heard and act in a responsible way with it? Yeah. Do you feel like you've been in situations where you were navigating some of those dynamics? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot. I would have said before this summer that I'd done a good job or not a good job, but that I'd been in, invited into enough of those spaces that I cared a lot. And so I felt I probably would have said, yeah, I've, I've been in those spaces and have tried to listen and I care. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, worked really hard in different places where I've been professionally to try to make space, make sure that there was a good representation of, of women, of people of color, of all of those things, mm -hmm. right? Like I would have said, I try really hard. Mm -hmm. But then this summer, I think with all of the racial justice protests that happened and all of the people speaking about it and books that were sort of, you know, everybody was buying these books mm -hmm. and reading them, including me. And I think that really opened my eyes to like, OK, I have a long ways to go mm -hmm. and a lot still to learn. I remember seeing like a New Yorker cartoon this summer of like a black person and a white person hiking up a mountain and they're carrying racial justice on their back. And the white person mm. says, I'm already so exhausted. And the black person says, like, we're just at the beginning. Right. And so if we feel like we have a long ways to go and it's like, but how much more do we do? <laughs> that in and of itself just points to the fact that we as white women it's easy for us to feel like we can check in and out of the conversation and in and out of the work. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for you in this regard, but like name all the things that we've done and feel like mm -hmm. that's enough or like we've, right. we've justified ourselves or something. Right. Or to feel like, okay, we're really being good allies. And then it's still not something that I have to think about every day or all the time. It's easy to sort of just be like, pat myself on the back, but then see something like what happened with Amy Cooper this summer in New York City on the Upper West Side where I live, where, you know, 
this racist encounter mm-hmm. where she's yelling at and calling law enforcement on a black man who's just bird watching. And her dog was off the leash. And that's you're not supposed to have your dog off the leash in those parks. That's and even part of that is that's like I know I sort of feel above the rules a lot of times, mm. you know, and and that was like even my own realization of like I get to feel like I can be above the rules because I don't ever feel afraid of being arrested or of police brutality or of having someone come up to me and threaten to call the cops, you know, like mm-hmm. I never have to face that or deal with that. Yeah, and in fact like, you know, historically white women's tears and a perceived threat from black men has been used to like, you know, hundreds of black men have died at the hands of this kind of action. And it struck me reading about that story. And of course I was following it not only because it was in New York, but also because it was about bird watching Um, (laughs) that he could have been killed. Christian Cooper, who she called the cops on who knows what would have happened when the police got there. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that both of us never have to live with that kind of embodied threat of police. You know, a lot of Black people in America, their last names were inherited from their slavers. And so to have both of those people, Mm. this white woman and this Black man, share the same last name, like it had this other like level of resonance of like, Mm. this tension is so old. White women have felt like they've had power over black men who share their last names, you know, for centuries in America. And we're still here. We're still in that space. Mm -hmm. I think I've just realized, man, this permeates every level of our society. And I didn't want to think it did. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, part of the experience of the Ruby Woo pilgrimage shaped in me was just this sense of showing up to the conversation and not having to have all the answers or not having to have it figured out or not thinking that you as the white person are going to come in and like solve racism. (laughs) Because that in and of itself implies a kind of centering yourself in the conversation. Yeah. Although interestingly, I think with my own job and professional like space, I think I've often taken myself out of the equation in the sense of saying, okay, my job is to give a space or a platform to marginalized people, to hire Black authors to write about topics Mm -hmm. or, you know, women of color. And so I could do that in a sort of distance professional way and be like, okay, I've done this important work, but it was often not work on me or work on Mm. like my own role or my own thinking or my own way of being in the world Mm -hmm. and interacting with people in my own life. And I think that was one of the big challenges for me over the summer was like making this, actually making this personal and something that wasn't just something I tried to do well in my professional life, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I wish that every woman thinking about racial justice could go on this pilgrimage. And obviously, none of us are traveling much these days. (laughs) But... I did think that the next best thing would be for us to have an honest conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper herself about white women's roles in the work of the daily relational work of being allies to women of color. So in other words, the best way for you to enter into that space is to own the fact that you are Midwestern. And what does that mean? How did your families come to the Midwest? It's a good mm-hmm. question. You need to do your own research. You know, Caitlin knows I am a, I am all about the family research. <laughs> I really am, and it's not just mm-hmm. a, it's not just a fun thing to do. It's mm-hmm. necessary for healing in our nation. 
Our conversation with Lisa is coming up. But of course, first, we want to give a shout out to one of our patrons, Religion News Service. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Check out the newsletters, the opinion pieces from all different perspectives and belief systems from Simranjit Singh's Articles of Faith to Jonathan Merritt's column on faith and culture. From Omar Suleiman's Islam Beyond Phobia and Jana Reese's Flunking Sainthood, there's something for everybody. For the best in global religion news reporting, visit religionnews.com. And while you're in front of your many screens, contact us. We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at hashtag SaveByTheCity, and you can find a larger conversation happening there. We are so honored to have our guest, Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa is the founder and director of Freedom Road, a consulting group that bridges what she calls a narrative gap in our common understanding and common action. She's a prolific writer, speaker, and activist who's worked on issues from immigration to racial justice to healthcare reform. She has a forthcoming book from Brazos Press on her family's story and history. And full disclosure, I do get to edit that book, and it is going to be (laughs) excellent. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. I wanted to start by recalling a conversation that you and I had back in 2017 on the first Ruby Woo pilgrimage, which was an Mm -hmm. incredibly transformative three or four days with about 50, 60 Christian women, extremely diverse group of women. And being a white woman in that conversation and that time together, I felt like my primary role was to listen and learn. I think in a lot of white majority spaces, it's easy for me and other white women to kind of assume that we're like at the center of the activity and the conversation. And so I was sitting back and trying to just listen and learn. And there was an afternoon where you came up to me and just asked, like, how are you doing? You know, checking in. What I remember of the of the conversation, what I had hoped to get across was that oftentimes white people, but especially white women, think that their rightful place in these conversations is silence and that they're not allowed to speak and it's not good for them to speak. People don't want them to speak. People Mm, want you to fade into the background and just not be seen, not be heard, right? Mm -hmm. And what I hope I communicated to you was that actually that could not be further from the truth Mm. that Mm. when people of color share their heart and share their stories, what the hope will be is that those stories will be heard, really heard, Mm -hmm. reflected back, and interacted with, that you will call present as well. Mm -hmm. And present doesn't mean sitting there in a seat, right? Present means leaning in, listening, interacting with, asking questions to understand, Mm -hmm. letting folks know, I think I get this and this is why. Mm-hmm. Or I don't think I, I get it. And this is why. Mm-hmm. And also being willing to be wrong, quite honestly, being willing to be called mm-hmm. out rather, which yeah. is actually called in, mm. in those conversations. Being called out is actually a call in. If people didn't care what you thought, they literally would not call you out. <laughs> mm. They literally mm-hmm. wouldn't say anything. They just go, oh, you know, but if they say something, it's because they care. They either love you deeply or they know 
that you have the level of influence that if your thinking is off about them and you reflect that back to your community, then their lives can actually be more, right. have more struggle in it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when people share their hearts and struggles, including their anger mm-hmm. and their sadness and their pain, but also their joy in your presence, you can assume they've first of all chosen to do that because they didn't have to do that with you there. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, that they are inviting you into relationship mm. and relationship requires presence, full presence. Mm-hmm. Thinking about situations that may be similar that I've been in, I think I probably had a, had a similar posture as Caitlin of like, oh, this isn't my place. This isn't my place to say anything. I'm here to listen and learn and to absorb and to reflect. And so I think it's powerful to hear you say that. I think a lot of emotions that stem from that for 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 me and probably for for other white women in those situations would be first there's that resistance of like not me i'm not racist you know i didn't grow up that way or i don't believe that and then i think there's some feelings of like well maybe i am or i didn't see that influence on me or that way that i grew up and so then there's feelings of like guilt and shame and you know mm. i think there's also a discomfort of like well if I bring that to the table, then it's just centering white feelings Uh, again in the midst of this. And so mm -hmm, I think there's, you know, mm -hmm. we're wrestling with a lot of mm -hmm. those questions about how to be in that space, who we need to be in those spaces and helpful. And so I think that's, this is not a question. This is just wondering like, you know, like where are we to go with those feelings and is that the space for it or or is, you know, how do we deal with it? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like that's really, literally like the question probably for white women, I swear. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, you have a good instinct. That's not the space for that. It's Mm -hmm. not the space for you to center your guilt. Mm -hmm. Guilt is real, by the way. Individual guilt is inappropriate unless you have literally contributed to it. But there is a reality of collective guilt Mm-hmm. There is a reality of collective complicity mm-hmm. and complicity mm-hmm. comes through silence actually more than anything mm-hmm. else. And if it's not you, really, you just got to do your work. What about your ancestors? What about your grandma? What about your mom? Were they recipients of the GI Bill? Were they recipients of the Homestead Act, which is how most of the Midwest mm-hmm. was, quote, one, free land given out by the American government to white people, mm-hmm. taken from Cherokees again, twice. They got their land stolen twice. Yeah. Once in the Southeast. And then when they were moved to Oklahoma, their Oklahoma land was given away in the Homestead Act. So if you're of Irish descent, if it's Mm -hmm. not your family, it's your people who were Mm -hmm. a part of that. Also Swedish, Dutch, German, all of these people groups benefited from actual oppression. So it's not to say, oh, beat me with a guilt, you know, whip or something like that. No, no, no. It's to recognize so that given the next time And there will be, there is right now, opportunities to make better decisions, decisions for the justice of all. You, in your generation, you can turn it around. You have the Mm -hmm. ability to say yes to justice, not yes to injustice. So when I say guilt is real, what I mean to say is guilt is actually a gift. Hmm. Guilt, when you feel it, when you realize, ooh, My family was a part of that. When you realize, oh, I am a part of that. Well, that's a gift. Because guilt is an actual action that was done, it can be undone. Mm -hmm. It's not a state of your being. Mm -hmm. Now, when you sense shame, that's another story. 
Shame is like that pervasive feeling that I am bad. I am rotten. I am evil. My people are evil. Shame Mm -hmm. silences you. There is no way actually to repent of shame because shame is not about your actions. It's about who you are. When you feel that, when you feel frozen, like there's nothing I can do, that's not guilt. That's shame. And then what you got to do is you got to say, shame, go to hell where you belong. Hmm. You know, I send you back to hell, back with the devil and his demons, because you don't belong around here. And then lean into the conversation again. Mm -hmm. And you lean in, the best way to lean in is by asking questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Going back to this distinction between like individual guilt and collective guilt, Mm -hmm. as you put it, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of white Christians really get individual guilt. I mean, that's how the gospel... Right. has been preached to them for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about experiencing and partaking in a guilt of something that you don't think that you individually chose, yeah, that's right. it's a real barrier. So in your decades of experience working in some of those spaces, what are some of the primary barriers that you see to white Christians and maybe especially white Christian women grappling with the realities of systemic racial injustice. White women, I will speak this into the white women situation. White women can be some of the most ardent supporters of that hierarchy, either through their silence or through allowing their bodies to be used as moral covers for white men. Right. And that happens because in the bargain, at least white women get to be white, mm-hmm. even if they don't get to be men. Right. And so much of the system and the way that it was built, white women's survival was based on being connected to a white man. Oh, my gosh. And yes. the power structure that came with that. And yes, while that may not be as true anymore, the feeling of dependency there or the desire for that supportive structure is still there. What I've learned is that white women are literally reared Y'all are taught from birth to shrink yourselves, literally shrink your bodies and shrink your voices, literally, so that your voices are usually up here somewhere, right? (laughs) You literally speak up into your head, Mm -hmm. shrink your voices, you shrink your bodies so that size zero is the ideal. Mm -hmm. And you shrink your brain. Not that you're not smart. You're smart people, but you don't let it be known that you're smart. Mm -hmm. You often will shrink your presence in a room so that you don't fill up too much space in a room. Why? So that you will be acceptable to white men. And if acceptable to white men, then you'll be brought along for the ride, for the white patriarchal ride. That is even more true in white evangelical subculture. I mean, submission. There's a word, you know, there's a word for it that is part of it. And even more true in the South. Mm -hmm. So like you take white evangelical culture, boom. Mm -hmm. And then you take the South on top of that. And oh my gosh, now let's talk about New York City and you moving into New York City. All right. Let's Let's do do it. Because the majority of white evangelicals who move into New York City are from the South. Mm. I don't know if y'all know that, but we're not. Caitlin and I are not, but it's the majority. We understand, but it is true. It is, it is, right? For sure. If you go, I've met many of them. Yes, (laughs) a lot of it is the mindset, and this is a generalization, but kind of 
taking the city for yes. God. There's a sense yes. that, yeah. you know, yes. the oh, city yeah. is... Needs some saving. Yeah, that it needs this. We need to be the presence of God in this city as if God isn't already there. <laughs> oh, my God. It's just so funny. It's right. really, really, really funny, actually, when you really stop and think about it. I mean, you know, we know this to be true. The most devout people in the entire United States, in other words, the people who actually do go to church every Sunday and quote their pastors every Sunday night who pray before everything are people of color. Mm -hmm. Like it's people of color, evangelicals of color, Catholics of color. Mm -hmm. It's, it's Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs. Like these are the most devout people in the whole country. Yeah. White folk are not except for the Latter-day Saints. No, statistically no. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Period. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. <laughs> not that individuals can't be devout. That's not what I'm saying, right? right. So don't hear me sure. wrong. Sure. What I'm saying is that statistically, yes, like in terms of the numbers of people, percentages, blah, 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 right? So given that reality and given that cities hold more images of God than any other place on earth, mm-hmm. and in our urban centers, our cities, you find more images of God that are people of color than anywhere mm-hmm. place mm-hmm. on earth. You actually must understand mm-hmm. the cities are the most devout places on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when friends would comment to me before I moved to New York, like, oh, you just got to be careful. And I would think yeah. there is a yeah. church on every corner, more than every yeah. corner yes. in Brooklyn. Do you? Yes. So that comment is this refusal to recognize the devotion of the people of color who have been in New York right. for centuries now. Right. You know, it's yeah. it's it's yes. almost like, well, but because the white Christians aren't there, that it's not really devout. Yes. Right. And there you got it. That is called a colonizing mindset. Hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. that is the colonizing impulse. It's the the impulse to come in, to go into territory take the territory, claim it as in um, claim the right to rule Mm -hmm. and that things are not well until you do. Right. So religiously, I mean, so, so, so many Southern Baptist churches, PCA churches, how many PCA church plants do we have in New York City? (laughs) My God. So I think for Caitlin and I, as two white evangelical Christian women who moved to New York City, not from the South, but from whiter parts of the country, uh, the Midwest and the Mountain West, part of this podcast is really wrestling with what is our place in New York Mm -hmm. and how do we be there not just as consumers and not as colonizers, but as people who are really invested in the whole community and in the flourishing of the city and how we can learn from the city and grow from Mm -hmm. the city. So you know, what is your sort of advice to us in that way in a city that's diverse, but incredibly divided? Yes. New York City is, it is both of those things. In fact, back when I was living there in 2010, I think, or somewhere between 2008 and 2010, uh, I think it was Time Magazine did a report on the 10 most segregated cities in America. New York Mm. City was number one. Mm. I was like, wow, we have such a myth there of being so desegregated. Everybody rides the subway. We're all together on the streets. Like, you know, but actually when everybody goes home, it is the most segregated city in the the country. Which is where everybody is right now. Oh, that's right. That's true. (laughs) So how do you guys, how do you do it? That's a great question. I, I think that first and foremost, you have to actually own where you're from and maintain connection to where you're from. Because your greatest value in New York City is to help share the stories that you learn there with the people back home. 
and understand what you are bringing into that space. Like, so you're not you, you are all your ancestors and you literally like in your Mm -hmm. actual DNA, you're literally bringing everybody Mm -hmm. into the room when you, when you walk into a room, but also you're bringing your culture, your Midwestern, Mm -hmm. upper Midwestern culture. You are bringing your evangelical culture. You are bringing a worldview that was shaped over long periods of time through actual experience of government policies and people interacting with those policies around your ancestors and that shaped their worldview and they handed it down to you. Mm. So in other words, the best way for you to enter into that space is to own the fact that you are Midwestern. And what does that mean? How did your families come to the Midwest? It's a good mm-hmm. question. You need to do your own research. You know, Caitlin knows I am a, I am all about the family research. <laughs> I really am, and it's not just mm-hmm. a, it's not just a fun thing to do. It's mm-hmm. necessary for healing in our nation, mm-hmm. because unless you understand you are Midwestern, then you won't understand that as a Midwestern white woman, you are part of American history, history that actually has connection to New York City. Um, Mm -hmm. has connection to Boston, has connection to Philadelphia, has connection to the South, a real connection to the South. When you come into this, into New York City, I would be asking the question, how does New York City interact with my history as a Midwesterner? Mm -hmm. And what can I learn about myself here? That's what I really would mm-hmm. do if I were you. And I know that sounds like, oh, but that's centering whiteness. No, 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 no. <laughs> we're not centering you in the conversation. We're asking you to center your story so that you can know your story. Because the number one, I think, the number one reason why we continue to be where we are in this nation, we, why we had January 6th happen, mm-hmm. is because mm-hmm. white folks don't know, really. They don't know their story. They know what they were told, but they don't really right. know. Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed several times in our conversation, you've said white and then sort of gone back and said of European descent. And is that sort of related? Like we're not like understanding our own history and our own ancestors and not just us as white. You got it. You're very smart. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really, no, I'm serious. I I don't mean to to joke too much. That's actually very astute of you. Whiteness (laughs) is a construct. Mm -hmm. And so I actually do call some people white. But you don't want me mm. to call you white because if, <laughs> if I call you white, it's because I actually see that you are captive to whiteness, mm. that you are not only are you a person of European descent, but you're bought in to the lie of human hierarchy and you're holding on to your rung in that hierarchy. If I call you white, know that I'm calling you out, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. is actually a call in. <laughs> so... When I say a person of European descent, what I'm really doing is I'm calling forth the history, mm-hmm. the reality that there are many different people groups that came to the United States from Europe. The reason why your people came to America usually is because they were traumatized in Europe. Mm-hmm. They were traumatized through famine or oppression. Right. And so they got on a boat and they came here and traumatized people, then traumatized people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't think until you understand your own trauma, I mean the trauma that came before America, Mm -hmm. then I don't think you can actually understand how to stop inflicting that trauma on others. The idealist in me wants to be like, we're all women, you know, women of any color and unite against the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. But 
there's obviously such a history of anti-blackness in white feminism, especially that anti-patriarchy isn't necessarily a unifier. What is the sort of racial justice and gender justice intersection and how do white women sort of participate well as feminists in, in terms of facing not patriarchy in general, but especially white patriarchy. Well, I am tempted to turn to, to Caitlin and ask her, Caitlin, what do you think? Because because <laughs> Caitlin went on the Ruby Woo pilgrimage and that's what that was all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally. I'm not just tempted. I'm going to ask. Caitlin, what do you think? <laughs> okay. So I guess I'll just speak more personally in my work as an editor who's been given some measure of power, responsibility in a white majority context, that part of my role not only is to address some of the patriarchal norms in that context, but to de-platform myself. Like, I'm not really doing my work in that space if I'm only bringing along other white women. Mm-hmm. And I think looking back on previous work, I haven't always done that well because I won't name which organization, but if you look at my bio, you can probably figure it out. (laughs) There was a, an attitude that like, if you try to shoot for racial diversity and gender diversity, it's becoming too progressive or it's becoming too, ah, it's, 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 there was a real sense of like, we have to maintain control, you know? Wait, now, can I just, can I just interject real quick? Mm-hmm. Cause that is it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You realize what they said. And the thing is, I know the people you were, I mean, you were inviting my friends <laughs> right. to come and write on that platform and they were all evangelical. Mm-hmm. And yet it was going to be too progressive if you had too many people of color. Hear what you are saying. Right. What you are saying is progressive. Mm-hmm equals people of color. Exactly. And that is a Mm -hmm. formula that was created Mm -hmm. by the religious right Mm -hmm. in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Because people of color equals civil rights. Right. Civil rights equals taking away white power. Mm -hmm. And so that equals progressive. And it was mixed up with feminism at the time, Mm -hmm. too. Again, it's sort of the same thing. It's like, okay, well, you can't be you can't be feminist and civil rights. Like, you can't have both of those wow. things happening, so then, you know, because that's way and progressive. And then, where do black women stand? Exactly. Right. You can't. Black women can't be in that pop in that exactly. And that's the reason why most mm-hmm. of the time we're not we're not on those platforms mm-hmm. because we represent the most progressive voices in America by that rubric, by yeah. that standard. You can't get right. more progressive than a black woman. Mm-hmm. Because right. we are both black and woman, mm-hmm. right. except maybe a transgender woman, <laughs> you know. Even the use of the word liberal or progressive to denounce or to kind of, this is a code word for bad. Mm. This, yes. you know, we for have sure. a, we have a quote unquote theological system that mm-hmm. has to be pure. And if you're too liberal, too progressive, you're outside the bounds. But of course, those bounds are r- wrapped up in maintaining white power and white male power and control. It's not ultimately about Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not about brown Jesus. Mm-hmm. It is ultimately about whiteness. I just want to know the freaking truth. Can we just, can we mm. just find the truth mm. and stand on it? Let's just know our own stories, listen to each other's stories, repent where we've done wrong, 
tell the devil to go back to hell when he tries to put shame on us and tell us that we're we're not made in the image of God because we are. And then actually get busy making this a more just world, making this a world where the images of God in every corner of your city shine. One of the big moments for me listening to Lisa that I felt very inspired and challenged by was to follow her instructions and actually learn about my own history in this country. And honestly, I don't know it very well. You know, my family tree doesn't go back very far that I like that we've traced. Yeah. I mean, I think you could find Beatty family history in Ireland, England, German, Scottish. You could probably tell that from my pasty white skin that that's where I'm from. But yeah, I don't have a strong sense of how my ancestors ended up in the United States. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, like you, I know that I've got a little bit of various European ancestry primarily, Mm -hmm. if the red hair didn't give it away. And it does. I am primarily (laughs) Irish. So we have that in common, some Irish history. Mm -hmm. I wish I had hair like yours. You got the better genes. I don't know. You've got that baby doll skin. <laughs> well, I call it pasty white, but um, I will take that. I'll take Go that baby doll. Baby doll. <laughs> so we thought we'd call up one of the key scholars of immigrant history here in New York to learn a little bit more about our Irish history in the city that we now call home. Well, Dave, I will kick us off with a very broad question to start off with. Why generally were Irish families immigrating to America in the 19th century? And what did they generally experience once they got here? Yeah. So, you know, I think that uh, like many immigrants at the same time, it's, it's about economics. You know, I think the thing that is unique to Irish immigrants in this particular moment in time, we're talking about the mid 19th centuries, of course, the potato famine, the right. great famine, the great hunger to make a very long and complex story short, right? The primary source of food for the majority of Irish, uh, essentially peasant farmers in Ireland, right? Sort of the majority of Irish in Ireland at the time. Uh, was destroyed by a kind of a fungus and, you know, they're not able to feed themselves, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, those that survived or those that were able, many of them sought refuge here in North America and a big place that was a draw was, of course, New York City. Mm-hmm. But they weren't necessarily welcomed with open arms, right? There was persecution that the Irish specifically faced when they arrived in New York? Yeah, you know, and I think the way to think about, right, it's the sort of well-worn trope of a, quote, nation of immigrants is one, I think, that historians are finally beginning to interrogate, right? Hmm. There are lots of people who have come here either voluntarily or involuntarily uh, Mm -hmm. over the course of the nation's history. Yes, they were, you know, looked uh, upon by native-born Americans. Who are these people? What are they bringing? Kind of questioning and discrimination and sort of all of the kinds of uh, things that come with that perspective. And many were Catholic. Yeah, that's the other big component. You know, what does it mean to have large numbers of of Catholics? Who do they owe their, quote, allegiance to? Is it the Pope in Rome, ultimately, or is it their sort of newfound home, the United States? And I think, you know, it's important to sort of understand that the Irish were really 
really sort of according to the views of native-born Americans, really being sort of slotted into what you would think of as a racial hierarchy, right? Meaning, yes, the sort of uh, history of the quote-unquote Irish, uh, you know, not being white at the time is interesting. And I think there's a a particular history that's worth exploring there. But on the Mm -hmm. same token, the Irish were considered quote-unquote white in the kind of legal sense. They could become naturalized citizens and vote long before Black Americans could, whether they were enslaved or had been enslaved or not. Right. And that's sort of where we're at right now. I mean, these groups were, you know, these sort of very factious European immigrant groups ended up assimilating. We don't see sort of the same Irish, Italian, German, Polish divisions, yet we still have very strong racial divisions in terms of Black, white, Asian, Latino in New York. Right, right. Absolutely. And we're sort of exploring, you know, a set of stories now about Irish and Black New Yorkers in the 19th century, where both were working as waiters, you know, both competition among those waiters, but also, you know, kind of cooperation and and collaboration in terms of like labor organizing. So, you know, I think it's a really interesting history. But yes, we ultimately end up in the place you're talking about, right, which is part of this really difficult and challenging history. So where do you see these kind of historical, ethnic and racial divisions still affecting life in New York City today? Where are they still cropping up? Mm. That's an interesting question. You know, as you were suggesting, if you think about Irish Americans, you know, really becoming over the course of generations, going from a kind of discriminated group uh, upon arrival to really being kind mm-hmm. of mainstream, quote unquote, Americans by a certain point of time, mm-hmm. really, really being part of the quote unquote establishment, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about the role of the Irish or Irish Americans in building the, the police force in New York City and the issues that we're still grappling with today, with police brutality and anti-Black racism and stuff. And I think, you know, all of those threads are really kind of connected and really deserve a lot of kind of unpacking and untangling. Yeah, it seems like these European groups kind of became, whiteness became the sort of de facto American identity Mm -hmm. and merged in a way that people of color were not able to. Yeah, and just to highlight that, I mean, both Roxy and I have Irish heritage, Mm -hmm. but I don't think either of us thinks of ourselves as Irish American, right? You know, the the ancestors of Irish American immigrants. We think of ourselves as white Americans. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's a very good point. We're able to kind of forget that history because it's not. We're not reminded of our difference Mm -hmm. as our ancestors were easily assimilated in a way that a lot of our neighbors of color remain unassimilated or seen as other or marginalized. That's interesting. Well, thank you so much for giving us some time today. That was my pleasure. Thank you for your time and for your expertise. So Dave laid out a lot of history for us. And I'm wondering what struck you or stood out to you in the history that he presented. Yeah, I think it was it was interesting to hear about some of the early Irish experience in New York and some of the persecution that they faced, especially around religion. But I think what struck me more is that it didn't last very long. These various European immigrant communities really did start becoming a melting pot. This European Mm -hmm. descent, this whiteness became the overarching de facto American identity. Right. Like Lisa said, a lot of our ancestors were deemed white by the state. 
And because they were assimilated into this project of whiteness in America, that's why we're not aware of any real ongoing legal or cultural prejudice against people of Irish descent and other European countries. Right. I mean, aside from the red hair, it took me doing a DNA, you know, one of those Ancestry.com kind of tests, Mm -hmm. spit tests to really like confirm, oh, yeah, my ancestry is Irish and English and some German. My family doesn't carry any sense of identity around that. We don't celebrate Mm -hmm. St. Patrick's Day in some kind of significant way, you know, or anything like that. I know there are parts of the country that still have more of that Mm -hmm. tie to their European heritage, but I really don't. So I don't think about it very much. And I certainly don't think about it in the way that Black people in America are forced to think about their heritage and their ancestry on a Mm -hmm. daily basis. Yeah. You hear people comment sometimes like white people don't have culture, (laughs) which is not not true. Like to be a human is to have cultural norms and values and practices. But I think what that is trying to get at is the sense that like, because we're disconnected from our heritage, we've lost a sense of narrative and identity. And in the absence of that, a lot of white people in this country have attached to overtly racist ideas about themselves, like white supremacy. That's the common culture. Right. (laughs) In some ways. Right. The inherited culture is whiteness, Mm -hmm. which Lisa was talking about. And it was, I think, driven home by that interview with Dave at the tenement in a way that connected some dots to me about why, in some ways, whiteness became the de facto American culture and in some ways was set up as anti-blackness too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how does knowing all of this inform how we engage racial justice today and try, however imperfectly, to be better allies to neighbors of color? I feel like it could go a lot of ways. I think one takeaway that I had from this and, and, and other things I've been reading and thinking about is what does it really mean to decolonize our faith? In other words, what does it mean to separate a faith that in many ways I inherited from Europe and European ancestors, like how to separate that from whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I actually ordered a bunch of books by Irish theologians recently for that very reason to like connect back to like sort of the Irish roots of my faith as maybe part of that in terms of understanding the colonializing aspects of my own faith. Mm -hmm. What are you tackling right now or what are you kind of thinking about in terms of your role in being an anti-racist? Well, this goes back to something you mentioned earlier. I resonate with the sense of recognizing that I do have a role to play in my professional life in terms Mm -hmm. of, I mean, I have an opportunity to give, like literally kind of give platforms to authors and part of the work of decolonizing our faith corporately is to really highlight resources from Yes. Theologians of color, authors of color, activists of color who are maybe, I think Lisa would suggest, bringing us back to a more truly biblical understanding Mm -hmm. of the Christian faith and peeling back layers of whiteness that have been built up in the American church for centuries. So I definitely feel a responsibility in my professional life. I think I'm challenged to build relationships as well. And even saying that, (laughs) you know, I have been able to build relationships with Black women through my work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But truthfully, I I don't interact with a lot of women of color in my daily life. And maybe it starts with interrogating why that is. Like, is it about the church that I go to? Is it about 
living in a gentrified neighborhood, which I certainly do. Right. So I think the work seems to be a lot of interrogation and committing to the process of continuing to learn. Yeah. In a lot of ways in my own timeline, for example, like on Twitter, I have really intentionally started following so many theologians Mm -hmm. of color and speakers and authors of color, just so that that's like constantly in front mm-hmm. of me is the the concerns mm-hmm. of those communities and also the joy of those communities and the beauty of those communities and you know seeing so much black art being mm-hmm. shared and black photography and just seeing the excitement over Amanda Gorman at the inauguration and the celebration of black art and black perseverance i've learned so much mm-hmm. that way and i've invited a lot of people to write for rns that I've learned about just by doing that and by sort of going on like Twitter, like follow this person and then follow this person they know and follow this, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, I recently had an experience where I was working with an author who wrote a piece that I had pitched and we ended up kind of wrestling over the topic. And I was kind of trying to push it in a direction that I began to realize I thought was great, but really was coming from a white woman's perspective. Mm -hmm. And I had started to center myself in that or to center my understanding in that. And that was really humbling. And I had to like, apologize to this Mm -hmm. author and so I think sometimes being willing to be wrong Mm -hmm. is part of this too so we've covered a lot of topics on this episode and one theme that's come up a lot is how vital it is for us to listen to and follow leaders of color. So we've done some homework and put together a list of wonderful folks to follow in our show notes on our website, religionnews.com slash saved by the city. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode. We'd love to hear what you think about our podcast. You can get in touch with us by tweeting using the hashtag saved by the city. If you have recommendations for topics or guests, we'd want to hear those for sure. And beyond tweeting, you can email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Saved by the City is a Religion News Service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.